Welcome to the Future Belongs to Creators. I'm your host, Nathan Berry. I'm the CEO at ConvertKit, and I'm joined by my co-host, Barrett Brooks. He's the COO here at ConvertKit, and we're on a mission to help creators earn a living. This show is about turning anxious energy into creative output during times of uncertainty. All right, welcome to episode 74. Arriba! Watch that we get a copyright infringement on this on this video on YouTube now. <laughs> it was less than 15 seconds. <laughs> you know, they're they're sticklers on that. They might <laughs> they might not let that slide. Oh man. Well, it's good to have you all here. I love that we haven't even asked how you're doing. And Sean is just right there in the chat. Green. Love hearing that. So how is everyone today? Let us know in the chat. Barrett, how are you doing? You're uh, living in the apocalypse. Yes, I'll I'll say I'm orange because that is the color of the sky where I live. It's fine. Portland is still a place worth living. It's just that the national media would have you think that it is a war zone and then the wildfires would make you think that the zombie apocalypse is happening and neither one are quite true. However, I will say the wildfires that are creeping up Portland's back porch have definitely made it feel a little more scary. My anxiety levels have been higher this week. It's like, you know, you layer the things on top of one another and eventually it's like, you know, okay, but really, enough. Oh, man. How are you doing? I'm, I'm good. Probably green. I think that your entertaining sagas about what's going on in life is making me more green. But yeah, like 2020 is just things laying on each other and it's wild. And so for anyone who doesn't live in the Western United States, fires are just a part of living here. They're just not normally this bad. Fire season started a little bit later this year and has been way more intense and has months to go. And so hopefully the weather changes, hopefully we get a break on all of this. But until then, yeah, really sorry for everyone going through it. Yeah, it was just one of those things that coincided. It was a very bad windstorm right when fires first started. Anyways, public service announcement Maybe try not to do gender reveals with pyrotechnic devices, which are one cause of a major fire in California. Okay, that is our allotted three minutes of weather and other updates. Glad to see that a few people are green in the chat. Today is a Friday. It is also Friday, September 11th. I would be remiss if I did not say it has been 19 years since the U.S. experienced one of the worst onshore attacks ever, I think, in our country's history. And so for anyone listening now or in the future who knew someone, uh, was affected personally, any of those things, we're with you. Obviously, everyone who who was alive at that time has personal memories of it, including us. So we're there with you in thought and spirit. And today's Friday, which means it's Q&A day. So let's transition into questions. We got a couple on Twitter ahead of time. I, I will always advertise for, hey, if you submit on Twitter ahead of time, you go to the front of the line. Hey, if you're live and you submit in the chat, you go to the front of the line. And hey, those are the two methods. So do one of them if you'd like your question. It's like, how many ways are there to get to the front of the line? <laughs> uh, it's like fast passes at Disneyland. They just gave out too many of them. And so then the line's really long. <laughs> okay. The first one is from Joey Augustine. He says, I have a small 165 person email list and 850 subscribers on YouTube. I'm about to launch my first online video course. How would you go about promoting it? Pricing it? Pre-launching it? 
It's on building a WordPress theme from scratch with Tailwind CSS. Okay, so Joey's building a course about building WordPress themes with a specific framework. And he's got a relatively small audience, but certainly an audience that's outside of his just like immediate friend group and family group. So it's people who really want to hear from him. What should he be doing to launch this thing and make some money from it? Yeah, well, the first thing that I would notice is he's getting more traction on YouTube than Twitter. And so I'd ask, I have questions in there, which he'll have to answer for himself. But when you see something like that happen, is it because you've, you know, you started on one platform and then moved to another? Or is it because you're naturally getting traction and momentum on one platform? You know, there's so many platforms that you don't have to feel like, oh, I have this big Twitter following, but YouTube's here. And so I better work on YouTube. Often what it means is something is working. You should keep doing that and then just let, you know, the other secondary or tertiary channels tag along and end up wherever they end up. So I would continue to focus on YouTube if that's the thing that's working. So that's the assumption that I'm making here. And I would work in, I would put out more video tutorials on that topic, related topics. You might feel like, okay, if it's already a video course, how many more free videos could I put out without giving away the whole course? Well, feel free to do videos just on Tailwind or just on WordPress you know, in front of development. And then your course is about the intersection of those two things. So look for some of that content that is going to solve really common problems. Also look for things that are going to be evergreen. You know, what are people searching for either on the web or on YouTube that you can get a lot more traction there. The other thing that I would do as far as going out and uh, there's a lot of questions in here, promotion, pricing, pre-launch on the promotion side, you know, start talking about it early. Even if you're saying things like I have a new course coming out this fall, you don't even have a launch date yet. Work that in, talk about it. Then once you have the name, like bring people along for that journey. Don't have this feeling of like, I need to be quiet and secret about it. And then I need to come out with this, like, here's the sales page, buy it now. You're actually way better off if you talk about it and go from there. What advice would you have, Barrett, on some of the other aspects? Yeah, I love what you were saying about the kind of pre-launch, just mentioning it, making sure people know and remembering that old adage that people have to hear something six, seven, eight times before they actually have it in their brains. And you and I recently went through our own little mini launches as ConvertKit Commerce came out. And that was the approach that we took. You know, it was just like produce our regular content. Yep. And then that's related somewhat to what we were launching, because just inherently based on how both of you and I work. That's the nature of the beast, which I'm sure it is for Joey as well. His normal work will be somewhat related to this course that he's launching. And in a PS to every email, I would increasingly add details about the course or like sprinkle out little pieces of what the workshop that I launched was going to be about. Twitter, I started to mention it ahead of time. I talked about it as I was working on it. And so just giving people those pieces and it sounds like your two platforms are YouTube and email. And so develop a content plan for that. You know, it doesn't need to be all specific launch content. It can just be your normal content production, but then add in like on this date, I'm publishing this piece and I'm going to talk about the course in this way at the end of it or whatever that might be. And then on the pricing side, I mean, Nathan, you've talked so much about pricing. I think you probably have a couple of articles about it, but if you can have tiered pricing, the biggest lesson to take away from that is the pricing anchor. You know, having that high priced offering that then positions your main offering or lower priced offering as a deal. It's a little bit of a psychological trick, right. but as long as there's value in each version of what you're selling, I think you should feel good about giving people those options. And a lot of times what you can do to really anchor that higher priced option is to give people some kind of personal interaction or a really high value bonus. And so there's different ways to go about that, that allow you to anchor at that much higher price that make the main version much more palatable. 
we've both talked a lot about this. Uh, I almost feel like curating a group of resources that we already have out there might be the most useful thing here. So maybe what we'll do is have our assistants team up and grab some collected links and reply to Joey's tweet and reply to my tweet about this episode. And then it'll go in the show notes too. I love it. I'm dropping a link right now in the chat of a pricing article that I wrote years ago for the fizzle.co blog on pricing mistakes and pricing and packaging. So it's right there. It's not specific to like launching one type of product. It's more general pricing advice. Also have low flying jets naturally. So, you know, it's not ominous at all. It's just what else in, in uh, 2020. Get a bunch of military jets buzzing over your house nice and low. Oh, the last thing I would say is go and convert it. Set up your pre-launch landing page do that right away as soon as you have a name for it just make up a name come up with three or four names pick your favorite of those run with it you can always change it later there's sort of this credibility thing that happens when you're like hey i'm the one making the course on this and then every time that you talk about it you can link back to that and people can sign up for it when i had a tiny email list of 50 to 100 people i had way more success getting people to sign up for a pre-launch for a new product than i did getting them to sign up for my newsletter yeah just keep that in mind it might be a, a better insight of. That actually brings up another point that I was thinking about that I forgot to mention, which is this is a great opportunity to leverage increased content frequency and talking about what you do and the course you're making to turn your YouTube audience into email audience. Big fan of growing wherever your audience is growing fastest primarily, but converting as many of those people to email subscribers as possible gives you ownership over that relationship long-term. Um, we talk about that a lot, that ownership over the relationship to your audience long-term is such, that is the asset in a creative business like the one that you're running. And so really focusing on uh, leveraging platforms where you own the relationship is really valuable because YouTube's algorithm, as it has and as it will, will change on a dime and there goes your audience. Uh, and so just remember that. Yeah. That's good. Okay, we got a question in the chat from Sean. He says, in regards to promotion, why don't both of you promote the Future Blocks creators, this podcast, to your newsletter list? For example, why not send out a quick broadcast to your subscribers before the Q&A Friday session starts? So my thought on this is not everyone wants to show up live on Mondays and Fridays to a podcast. And so I want to gradually find those people and promote it there. So if I were on top of my game, this is what I would do, is I would do a, what we call a link trigger in ConvertKit. And I would say, hey, if you want a reminder when we go live for this podcast, click here. And then I would have you know the sub-segment. Maybe, so I have 27,000 people on my email list. Maybe it'd end up with 500 that want that reminder email. I would not send it to all 27,000 in this case because it's high enough that if you get a higher percentage unsubscribe because they're like, look, I just wanted your long form essays, then I'm going to drive the list size down and I'm going to decrease my total list size because unsubscribe will be more than whatever I'm gaining from new content. So that's where I use segmentation. The other side is we've been driving more towards the subscribing, you know, subscribing and listening to on your phone. We love everyone who hangs out with us live and that adds to the dynamic of recording. But it's also, you know, we're pushing for people who, you know, are listening on the, out on their run or in their car or something like that. So those are my thoughts. And then on, on my end, I totally should, number one. Number two, I have not focused on building my own audience in years at this point. Like there is some residual growth just from stuff I've written a long time ago, but it's less than a thousand people. So the lift is not that big and it doesn't fulfill the promise that I made to the people who are joining my list. It's not unrelated, but it is not what I said I was going to be sending. And so I really try and be cognizant of that where 
I'd want to work it in, like Nathan said, as an addendum to a core value that I'm providing to my audience. And then say, if this is your journey or if you are a creator, this might be interesting to you. That being said, on some of my signup forms, I do ask if you're an employee, an entrepreneur, or a manager of people. And so I bet I have some entrepreneur people there who I could send it specifically to. Maybe I should. That's the output of that. Let's go to Noah, the pre-submitted question, and then we'll jump back over to the chat. Sounds good. Noah asked, so this is more about running a company like ours. Noah asks, what are the most unexpected or unusual reasons you've had to reject job applicants? We have a story for this one. Uh, Which story are you going to? The most unusual reason we've had to reject job applicants is that they were not real human beings. And so, oh my gosh, yes. Wow. I don't remember what (laughs) job posting this started with. I think it was a director level job. I think it was when we were recruiting for our board. Okay, that's right. It started when we were recruiting for our board and then it continued into trying to hire for a product leader and yes, continues to go on. And it continues today. We still cannot figure out what the long game is here, but they are playing it for sure. And so what they would do, uh, I don't know who they are, but- I think 100% of the profiles they created were female so far. No, there's some men in there. They're always diverse backgrounds. They're always, you know, I think they know that we have an intention in our company to build a diverse team. Okay, so there you go. And so for whatever reason, they never use white guys. So what they would do is they would spin up a LinkedIn profile real fast and they would put like well-known companies on there that we would be attracted to or they would just submit a resume with no LinkedIn profile. They'd spin up a Twitter profile real quick and they would create the same profile image across all of them. So they'd look at least theoretically like they could be a person. And the names of the companies they've worked for are like, okay, I mean, this would be legit if this is true. And then you get into it and it's like, oh, this isn't real. And so we decided to troll the trolls at one point and we followed through and we said, okay, great. We'd love to interview you about being on the board, even though we had a feeling they were not real. It's like, well, worst case, we lose 10 minutes of our time in the call early Best case, this is a real person. They've got a great background and this could work out for us. And we got on the call and we actually kind of felt bad about it because it it seemed as if there might be mental health challenges involved actually. And that maybe it's not like some kind of long con. Yeah. Maybe it's just someone that has challenges. And so we did end up ending the call early and we've just tried to keep an eye out to filter out these fake profiles since then. But imagine this, let's say over the course of a year, you're hiring for various roles and you all, you know, you're going through hundreds or actually thousands of applications. And in that process, you're like, oh, this person seems good. They worked at Stripe or they were at MailChimp and then they were at, you know, Active Campaign or like all of these relevant companies. And you're like, whoa, okay, the director of uh, product at Intercom wants to interview with us. That's amazing. And then you dig in, you're like, this doesn't feel right. And then you do a reverse image search on the photo and you find that it's not that person, it's someone entirely different. Or you find that this person does exist. This is their fake, like someone duplicated all of that, made a fake profile and applied it to them. And to this day, we cannot. I just, I don't understand it. We've called them out multiple times. They keep doing it. It happens like every other week. And I just have to imagine that they're at dozens of hours, if not a hundred hours or more of creating fake profiles. Yep. All the other reasons are pretty normal compared to that. You know, I think the the weirdest would be ones that are disappointing people interviewing who only address the male interviewer and not the female. Okay. So quick story on that. I didn't realize how common that was. I was actually out at dinner with Hillary. Must have been 
you know, back in the winter when going out to dinner was a thing. But the table right next to us was all of these women who were all senior executives in their companies. And they all were talking, we were talking with them a little bit because we had a two month old baby with us. And so they were, you know, it was just like, we're all friends instantly. But they all had stories of interviewing men who would, so it'd be like, say two female senior executives in the interview. And then they'd have a third person in the interview who is a guy who was one of their project managers or something like that. And the interviewer, you know, one of the VPs, she would ask a question and then the interviewer would respond and only talk to the guy. They all had the story. We've seen it a bunch of times from our team. It's such a instant culture red flag of what is going on where you're like, oh, I'm going to defer to the man in the conversation and like answer. Like, I don't I don't even understand it, but it is so common and so frustrating and instant disqualify. Yeah. And then there, there was one other one that I'll share and then we'll move on, which was, we are very, I mean, I have a t-shirt, a hoodie and a Braves hat on today. You know, we're very lenient on dress. Obviously we want people to dress how they feel most comfortable to get the best work done. Someone showed up to an interview one time, just like at best you would call it pajamas. And we're, we're also very family friendly and dog friendly, but they were the only person home taking care of their kid. And then but they were just like leaving the kid in another room, but the kid was like less than a year old. And it's like, well, do you just want to get the kid and put him on your lap or, and so the combination of just like complete lack of any decorum related to the interview and no acknowledgement of it, you know, even if you acknowledge it, like, Hey, we had this situation. I've got to be at home by myself right now. And I actually had a really hard morning. And so I'm still like not really put together, but this is really important to me. Okay. All right. We could deal with that. But they got up in the middle of the interview. They were not properly dressed. They were like chasing their kid in the other room. All of those things are understandable. Pants may have slipped lower than they should have. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Anyways, we are very understanding. And sometimes in an interview setting, there's just like a floor to that you've got to rise above. So that brings up an important pro tip since we all work from home in challenging new environments, right? Where maybe we're working from home. We, we don't have a house set up for it. We don't have a separate office. We don't, we didn't expect to have kids home full time. The number one thing that you can do to make it okay is to just acknowledge it. Like I was on a call with someone, you know, I've been looking forward to this call for quite a while and been scheduled a few weeks out. And I was like, okay, let's do it. A little bit before that, Hillary, my wife got a migraine. And so then I'm like, trying to juggle things. And and so then I had my son, Josiah, who was six months old at the time. And it's one of those things where it's like, now we're doing this call and I've got Josiah. And instead of like hiding him out of the way, you just be like, hey, this is Josiah. He's going to hang out with us for the next 30 minutes. And everyone's like, great. Because we all know that. But the weird thing is when you try to like pretend that it's okay and pretend that the screaming is not happening in the other room or whatever else, just acknowledge it and move on. The only other detail I'll add here is this was before, this was long ago before any of the current circumstances were involved. And so those are the stories. They, uh, They happen from time to time. Everything else is incredibly boring and just normal, like choosing between exciting and qualified people. Okay, back to the chat. Mislav or Mislav, hopefully I got that right one of those ways. How many people do you need to have in your audience to sell a product? I'm building a personal brand and I'm considering monetizing it via content either now or later on. Related to that, if I decide to monetize my personal brand via content, will that affect if I want to use my personal brand for freelancer consulting work as well? There's not a set number of people Yeah. So let me give like a quick framework here for just thinking about this. And then we can dive into maybe some advice. So 
there's these two different schools of thought of audience first or product first Mm -hmm. audience growth. And the idea is on one end, it's almost like when software companies get started and they either start with just a free platform, they'll figure out how to make money later, or they start with a product and then they figure out who wants to pay for that product. Same kind of thing, but for audience building. And so in this case, I think what you want to decide is, do you have enough clarity on what people will pay for to build the product or whatever the paid thing is up front and then build an audience around it? I personally find when people have deep personal experience in an industry or with a topic, that is a way to go. Or do you really just have a group of people that you want to be in your audience that you're really focused on serving and you want to grow an audience of them and then learn what they need from you and what they're willing to pay for? And so there's two different ways and there's no right answer, but I do think it's important to be intentional and to choose based on your experience and intent. Yep. That's good. With the second part of the question of like monetizing the personal brand via content, will that affect if I want to use my personal brand for freelance or consulting work as well? This ties into another question actually that we got on Twitter that we'll go to in a second. I would say that when you're in this world of like, okay, I want to sell products and do that personal brand. And then over here, I want to do consulting. And often we think about, oh, I need to keep these separate. That's a case where I think it makes more sense to put them together because often it lends more credibility. If I'm selling this thing, then I can use the consulting and all that. You know, I've helped dozens of companies with these types of problems. I've, you know, I've coached people in these areas, right? And then that adds credibility to the paid product. Or the other way, if you are doing the consulting and you have the paid product already, it's like, hey, I wrote the book on how to do this thing. I've already demonstrated this public expertise. And so they really go hand in hand and they're sort of this little flywheel that feed each other. I would think of putting them together as a good way to go because they're going to like lend each other credibility. Um, this other question that's somewhat related was from Ken Kuhn on Twitter. And he said, question for you know all online content creators, keep two blogs or go down to one. Here's the situation. I run a small indie Christian resource company. And on that website, I blog about helpful things for that audience. But I like to write, I like to write about a lot of things that are sometimes not related to faith nor the brand of Constant Source, his site. So over the years, I've also written a personal blog that focuses on some of my other passions and experiences as an online creator. So basically the question is, they're just different enough, right? Because I think most of the time our answer is like, make it the same. Like don't spread your efforts then. And so Ken's saying, they're different enough. What what should I do? When, when is it right to do two separate sites? Yeah, and, and I'm always gonna go back to what's your objective first. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if your objective is to earn a living and you're not yet earning a living as a creator, I think focus is really valuable because splitting your time across two endeavors Mm-hmm. Unless you're just a publishing machine, which can work if you are, I think is going to spread your effort too thin to really make substantial progress that gets you to earning a living quickly as possible. But if you're talking about just like two kind of passion projects that are meant to be on the side of your day job or something like that, like go for it. And I think in this case, I don't see enough overlap between them. I think there's too much different there on the the Christian side of his audience it's very specific. And then on the personal side, it's it's way more, it sounds like wide ranging and a little bit more about interest. And it's almost like people want to follow the personality there and they want to follow for the Christian content over here. And I think that those are different enough that I would keep them separate. And so then it would just be a matter of where am I investing my creative energy? Mm-hmm. And if you're already earning a living, you might've earned the right to split that focus. If you're not, but you want to, I would focus on one over the other and still not combine them. Um, and if they're just side projects, then do your thing and just like 
write as you'd like to or, or make stuff as you'd like to for each one. Yep. I agree with all of that. I think the only thing, right. So what you're going to of uh, deciding priority, I think is really important. And if you decide that building the blog for the Christian audience is the most important thing, like you're all in on that, then feel free to work in the personal writing to that always. So like we have this longtime friend, Steve Cam, who runs Nerd Fitness. And it is unapologetically a site for nerds who love Star Wars, Lego, etc., who want to get fit. And he has carved out what many thought would be a tiny little niche. And then years later, it has hundreds and hundreds of thousands of subscribers and is wildly popular. And he doesn't worry at all. He's unapologetic about bringing his story, his examples about unrelated things into that. But it's because he has such a clearly defined niche and that is his most important thing. And so when you're all in on one, then you can bring in your personal stories about something else and you can have five articles about your main topic. And then one, you know, that's my story, my journey, things I learned from my hundred mile bike ride this weekend, something like that. You know, if you want to tell those stories, that helps people who showed up for, you know, educational or useful content then connect with you as an individual creator. And that can be really good. But where you get yourself in trouble is when you're like, these are equally important and I'm going to pursue them at the same time in these two opposite directions. And uh, that's a recipe for not getting traction and then losing interest. Yep. Yep. Totally. Well, I've not been on the site Nerd Fitness in a long time. That was just a, a weird time warp for me. Anyways, that's all of our submitted questions. If someone wants to sneak one more into the chat, you can. Otherwise, <laughs> creator of the day. All right. I'm going with a creator who is already super famous. Um, so he doesn't need your additional content. But if you're looking for some joy this weekend, Trevor Noah on Netflix has a segment called, or a special called Afraid of the Dark. And it is so good. He has this whole series about the British invading India and colonization. And I think it might be some of the best five minutes of comedy I have ever seen. I would definitely check that out. It's on Netflix. And you can just look up other Trevor Noah clips on YouTube. He's got lots of them. Love it. My creator of the day, I'm a little bit prematurely promoting them. However, I just have to highlight the fact that Will and Ariel Durant. I'm reading that right now. This is a 128-page book called The Lessons of History. However, they wrote a series of books called The Story of Civilization that is 13,000 pages about world history in 11 volumes, 10 or 11 volumes. And I am determined to read this, and then eventually I will read all 13,000 of those pages because I cannot imagine a better steeping in the past that would allow you to make good decisions going forward than literally going back and studying the history of the world. Obviously, it's through one couple's filter, and so that's always going to affect it. But personal anecdote, all of you who are just here for the business content, you can turn (laughs) the show off now because I know I annoy some of you. In high school, I took AP World History, and I had the best teacher. I've I've actually gone and tried to find her and like where she is today, and I've had a really hard time doing it because I just want to send her a thank you for being one of those educators, you know, in your life that like she had all the patience in the world for me because I was a loser. And every day her class was right after lunch, I would sleep, I would nap. And I I think about that now and I'm like, God, you are an arsehole for doing that. Like she was putting everything into teaching this class and she still mentored me and invested in me. And I ended up passing the AP test. But I remember so vividly some of her lectures on 
some of the things that topics that I've enjoyed so much on shows like hardcore history now. And so I just think like, it's so interesting how we come back around to things Mm -hmm. now today. I'm like, I want to read a 13,000 page multi-book anthology on the history of the world. And then she couldn't even get me to stay awake through class. Anyways, Mrs. Nevins Johnston, if you're listening, I am sorry for being a jerk as a whatever sophomore in high school. Okay. That's my personal story for the day. Oh man. Okay. This isn't necessarily a resource, it's just an article that um, I would highly recommend reading. And that is in Politico and it's titled, I was U.S. diplomat. Customs and Border Protection only cared that I was black. I've shared this on Twitter and I'll have it in the newsletter on Tuesday. But just one of those articles that it's about this woman who worked for the State Department, you know, and was a foreign diplomat. Had She carries a diplomatic passport. She has all of these things. And it's just about story after story about her getting harassed by the Customs Border Protection in the very government that she works for. She has all of the special privileges that you could ever hope for. And she still is harassed nonstop. And this has been... An article, so there's a few people in my life who, as I've posted Black Lives Matter or as I've done other things like that and tried to just even start to take a stand, who have been like, oh, America's not a racist country. There's no such thing as systemic racism, like saying things like that. And this article actually was one of those things that helped to reach them because they went, oh, wow, she has all of those credentials, you know, and they would still accuse her of stealing the car, even though her car is registered to her like special privileges. And so anyway, if there are people in your life that you've had some of those difficult interactions with and you want to connect with them and share some resources, that article might be a little tip of a spear in getting them to see a different worldview. Yeah, it really goes right against the whole narrative that if you work hard, take care of your resources, present yourself properly, that everyone can get ahead. You read things like this and it helps combat that idea. Yeah. You know, sometimes it is literally the amount of melanin in your skin. Austin Mann, great friend, great entrepreneur. He's worthy of creator of the day. In fact, I think he's been my creator of the day before. Asked a question which will lead me to my resources of the day. Uh, what one piece of literature has had a dramatic impact on how you think about commerce and or building a meaningful business? And Austin, I have a stack. There is a section of my library dedicated to this. Nice. And it consists of, if you're on video, you can see the stack, but it consists of doing good better, by William McCaskill, which is about effective altruism, which is a theoretical framework for how to donate money to causes that push the world forward. The Responsible Company by Yvonne Chouinard about Patagonia. I also have Let My People Go Surfing by Yvonne Chouinard. Conscious Capitalism by John Mackey, the founder of Whole Foods. Raising the Bar by the founders of Cliff Bar and Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull from Pixar. That is my stack of books that have most influenced me in positive ways on thinking about commerce, business as a force for good and building a meaningful business. So there you go. Love it. All right, everyone. Thanks for hanging out with us today. We'll see you on Monday. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Future Belongs to Creators. If you didn't pick it up from the show, we make a tool called ConvertKit, where we're on a mission to help creators earn a living by building software that helps you build an audience of loyal fans. If you want to give ConvertKit a try, you can go to landingpage.new to launch your next creative project. You'll be able to build a landing page and send emails for up to 500 subscribers totally for free. So again, that's landingpage.new. You can get started with your free ConvertKit account today.